0: Welcome to the Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights, where law and AI collide. Get ready to level up your legal game with us. We've got career advice, cutting-edge developments, mind-blowing legal tech, and more. Know someone making waves in the legal AI world? Nominate them, or even nominate yourself. We love courageous souls. And don't forget, we want to hear from you too. Ask questions, drop comments, let's build a community of legal superheroes. But here's the deal. We're all about to have a blast. AI may be serious, but we're here to make it fun. So buckle up, get ready to power up and let's embark on this exciting journey together. Now let's introduce your fearless host, Olga Mack. Get ready to dive into the awesomeness of Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights. Let's go.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights. So excited to have this conversation. We've recently had President Biden sign executive orders related to AI, and I have an expert for you who will discuss implications. Without further ado, Steven, welcome to the show. So excited to finally have this conversation with you. We now have a great Me too. Please introduce yourself.
2: Please, I will. That introduction, the lead-in to this, I'm really gonna have to up my fun game because I don't know, you ever get laughs out of an executive order, but I'm gonna try, Olga. I'm gonna do my best. (laughs) My name is Stephen Kelta. I'm a longtime ethics professor and affiliated with the University Center for Human Values at Princeton. I've been at a couple of different universities. It's been a long journey in ethics. But starting about seven to 10 years ago, I started teaching a lot of digital ethics and then permanently transitioned into that about four years ago and got really interested in frameworks for implementing digital ethics within companies. Ethics is partially about decision-making. So I became interested in how engineers are actually making the decisions to design AI. And now that's right at the top of the executive order is decision-making processes within the government and within companies as well. So i feel um, it, lucky uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's definitely the topic du jour. so before you got to where you are how, what yeah. were your experiences uh how did you get up in the morning and decide to become uh, a professor of ethics
2: oh <laughs> I was a sophomore in college and uh, saw this lecture from a famous philosopher. He was teaching the class and I read in a footnote to one of his books. I just thought he was bees knees or whatever you want to say. He was the best. And, and then I read in a footnote to one of his books that he was, had gone to a conference in Siena, Italy to discuss his ideas or whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute, you can be a philosopher and go to Italy? That was all I wanted. Like, <laughs> I wanted to go to Italy. And then... Somehow it launched me off on this whole path, highs and lows along the way in academia, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, plenty of trips to Italy. <laughs> that is funny. As someone who by not by blood, but by desire is Italian.
2: <laughs> ah, there you, go.
1: You, can you can pretty much talk me into anything. If you tell me there will be Italian food or going to Italy or anything, even art, anything Italian will pretty much be a compelling argument to me, including going to academia. You can convince me to go to academia if you tell me about Italy.
2: (laughs) I was sold. And then in graduate school, the first professional paper I ever wrote uh, actually was on Niccolò Machiavelli. Why? He's an interesting dude. I think the paper (laughs) is good, but I wanted to get a grant to go to Italy.
1: (laughs) That would compel me to write about Mr. Machiavelli as well. Let's talk about the executive order. It has a few things. It establishes the new standard for AI safety and security, and it directs the National Institute of Standards and Technology to develop and accept a process for red teaming. What is red teaming? And what will the companies and government or whoever interacts with AI models actually need to do to meet those
2: requirements? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing, especially for people in the legal field who are watching, a bit of advice that we'll come back to at the end—a uh, takeaway. Let's not call it advice. This is just my impressions of things. I know that you have to say that in the legal profession. So there you yeah,
1: go. Yeah, maybe not give legal advice. Maybe we just think about predicting future and thinking right. how how we all gonna do the right thing. Yes. I'm going forward. Everything on this call
2: is merely my impression of things. But but an interesting impression that I have is that especially companies that are developing large models really need to be prepared for more requirements uh, in terms of what they do in process, in the process of developing those large models. But if you want to sell to the federal government, and many corporations do, you're also going to have to think about process. Now, the only process that was, it was a bit of a disappointment, the executive order to me. In this regard, and maybe in only a few other regards, that the only process that was really recommended within this was red teaming. Now, red teaming is standardly used to really just mean an adversarial way of testing, say the security uh, of a system, uh, where some people within your company, or you might hire hackers from the outside, they uh, attempt to attack uh, your system. They're the red team. Uh, You're the blue team, the defense. They attempt to attack your system, and then they basically hand over their information about how they found their way in, how they made your system break. This was actually done. The White House has supported various different cybersecurity challenges. It was done at a conference called DEFCON, and I think it was uh, Ruman Chowdhury, formerly of Twitter, who, who led this group. I hope I'm getting that right. And they figured out ways basically to break AI models, right? But I think when the executive order references red teaming, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology is supposed to establish these red teaming processes, I think they're meaning more by that. There are more processes that, that are at least from Stephen Keltz recommended for your organization to engage in a whole bunch of governance processes.
1: So I those merely recommendations or I, will will the folks actually have to, I don't know, disclose practices, maybe account for them, uh, maybe maybe not necessarily give all um output of red teaming because that's security risk but maybe somehow share a score or um timelines or or anything that they even done it
2: yeah really good point there about you wouldn't have to share all the outputs of uh red teaming because then you'd be given the enemy your the playbook right but at least a couple of types of companies are going to have to uh implement a a series of procedures um for uh, safety testing and revealing at least the output of the safety testing right away. And some of them are the ones creating the big models, right? There's a compute standard that's stated 10 to the 26th flops, all uh, right? Which I just enjoy saying. So I did, these are going to be the next generation models. So your open AIs and etc. are definitely going to have red teaming and other safety cross checks like data checks implemented. But if you're doing life science projects. It's probably also true. And uh, you want either funding from the NSF or NIH, or you want to get approved by the FDA. You're probably going to have specific procedures uh, in place and start documenting those. But then there's this, the big, uh, I can't think of the word for it. It's not a red herring or whatever. It's an Easter egg inside the executive uh, order. (laughs) Easter egg in the
1: executive order. I love that.
2: (laughs) It's Just a short sentence about procurement that the OMB is going to state procurement guidelines later. And that would basically affect everybody if you wanted to sell some model output.
1: It it seems you started with saying, hey, it's only going to affect those folks who have federal contracts, and that's a big population. It's certainly not everyone, but at the point, you have to require your vendors to do certain things that has a downstream effect to everyone and procurement is one way to do it. So that was actually gonna be my follow up question. Do you think in your saying that, hey, it's only for federal contract companies, which is a massive Mm -hmm. population, or are we actually Mm -hmm. practically speaking, this is gonna affect everyone in the stream of commerce?
2: I'm gonna go with the latter. This is gonna affect everyone in the stream of commerce because for instance, I'm working with a startup right now that just has it notional that they would want to sell, that they would want to be picked up as a contractor by Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid, the VA down the line. <laughs> to be safe, you better institute these NIST standards and more than just red teaming, right? Because it's going to get elaborated over the course. Like Precisely the processes that your company is using, you better start documenting. And there are other things you better start doing because it's likely down the line that you know, to even enter the gate with the federal government, you're going to have this stuff documented from way back.
1: It also gives you an opportunity to say, when something goes wrong, to say, Hey, there's one standard and I did my best to comply. And I didn't have to, at least not legally speaking. So it actually gives you a plausible argument that I did everything that is done today, that is state of the art. And so it's, it's usually a pretty good way to have conversation with regulators, plaintiff lawyers, employers, your employees, and then seek advice on how you can improve going forward. Uh, That is definitely a legal tactic. Again, not a legal advice, just something you do with disruptive technologies. If that's the standard (laughs) everyone lives by, it's hard to ignore it, even if it doesn't apply to you. So the other thing that the executive orders direct is the Department of Commerce to develop guidance for content authentication, watermarking, to clearly label AI-generated content. Who will have to use these tools? What will the effects on copyright, how will it change the, the copyrights? Yeah. And I'm asking a bunch of questions right next to copyright. There's the related issues of speech and let's just stop there because I think I named yeah. a few things that <laughs> we may want to discuss.
2: Yeah, for sure. And to keep to keep this a fun podcast, it's wait a minute, content authentication and, and copyright. I don't know. I don't know if we can go in the fun direction with that part, but okay, so the executive order basically only mandates that for government communications. So things coming officially to you from the government. The across various different government agencies, they're going to cooperate to establish authentication standards, to put a water watermark on government communications. But then the vice president said a few days later in in, uh, in London or Bletchley uh, House, I believe it was called, uh, that actually like 27 nations are working together on these uh, standards. And so I think this is a prelude to asking this of a lot of the companies that are content that are now turning into content uh, providers, right? Um and, and that, I do think, raises a lot of free speech and also Section 230 issues. And here's just an impression. I think a lot of the companies right now are bordering on losing their Section 230 protections because as they put out bots, as they label bots, as they say, this is there's a big company that used to be called something like Facebook that put out like a sports bot with my favorite player as its face, a big sister with Kendall Jenner as its face, and et cetera. You're starting to look like a content... Provider at that point, you're starting to look like a publisher. At that point, it's starting to look like you're standing behind these words, and there's going to have to be a new equilibrium about how Section 230 applies here, and watermarking, other safety and security features may end up being part of that equilibrium.
1: Let me interrupt you for a second. You're referring to 230 of CDA, right? Just to to what I'm through that that communication decency Act. For those folks who may be new-ish to this. What is the implication of 230 protection and why why it matters?
2: Yeah, so Section 230 allows platforms like that that one face space or whatever it's called to say we're not the publishers of the material on here, and so therefore we're not responsible for it in the ways that we might be, right? If it were to directly advocate violence or something like that. But by putting forth bots that are labeled as, say, a news bot uh, or something like that, uh, you might be running on the edge of no longer being seen as a platform and instead being uh, the publisher of that information. You still get First Amendment protections, right? But you also have the, any responsibilities that come with speaking out there. But is that a good rundown of it, all? No, quickly.
1: I think so. That's ba- basically a good summary of what what's known as a safe harbor <laughs> for republishing somebody else's uh, and uh, following various uh, things that you need to follow, to take down, to monitor, all kinds of things so that you do not have the same responsibilities as the publisher. I just wanted to make sure that everyone is aware of that, because we're very much squarely talking about copyright implication and then related implications of freedom of speech, and then various liabilities that you may or may not want to have as a publisher or non-publisher, depending where you stand with respect to your technology. It was a very hot contested issue in the beginning of Internet. took us a while to settle down on the process and protect the isps and and stuff like that it has not been widely debated in the last decade or so i would say but i think to your point we are squarely going into a new debate of what it means to have a safe harbor with respect to ai content so with that what do you think is going to happen to 230 to freedom of speech to copyrights no pressure this is like just yeah. tiny, small
2: questions <laughs> right, that
1: pretty right. much will determine the outcome <laughs> of this technology.
2: <laughs> right, right. I'm no futurist. Don't go to the betting uh, apps and, and, put, and put any money on this. But I, I, think there's, I do think there's a lot of impetus. And Biden promised this during the campaign. I do think there's a lot of impetus to overturn 230 anyway. And now you've got the companies edging up on on the activity of being a publisher and standing behind the speech that comes out on their platforms. So I think there's growing consensus on both sides of uh, the aisle, as it were, for to eliminate 30, but it's not the end of the world for free speech. It's 230 is free speech protective. I take it to be enacting principles that are also encoded in free speech law, but it just means that the companies are gonna have to become a little bit more proactive in terms of how they content moderate. They could make good faith efforts uh, before and say, hey, remember, this is not our content, so we're making our best uh, effort here. And they would be protected in making those efforts from any sort of prosecution, but they may be learning that. They may be leaving that safe harbor, as you say, and just gonna have to get more aggressive in in moderation. And that means also controlling the bots and good luck.
1: (laughs) As somebody who built 230 compliance in, in early ISPs, I know we've come a quite a long way. The most companies who are not publishers have very robust systems and processes in place. That I honestly, independent of 230 Harbor, I'm actually with you on that. You can maybe tighten it up a little bit more, maybe. But mm-hmm. like at this point, for example, YouTube is like very quickly telling folks that you're u- using copyrighted content, and, mm-hmm. and, and things like <laughs> Google and Microsoft have like really robust systems so i, I think yeah. there's a lot of best practices in place independent of 230 and so it will be interesting to see though whether the the two parties can unite for or against it it was a highly political issue uh, two decades ago um yeah so what do you, and, and do you because of copyright i care i care deeply about freedom of speech but, but i really also care about copyrights because the, the copyright is actually issue is very important in any technology Because we have a set of laws today that gives sort of default protections to folks who create. Now we have a co-creation going on with AI, Mm -hmm. Uh, and simultaneously we have the Copyright Office saying that you cannot copyright something created by a bot. (laughs) (laughs) Then you have this, what increasingly looks like, disclosure requirements, something we have today with influencers for example Uh, so there's Mm -hmm. sort of body of practices and laws to to build on so my question to you is with disclosure requirements and copyright the laws default laws and frankly the library of congress and the the copyright office soul searching what their roles should be (laughs) they recently Mm -hmm. just had open comment which i submitted a comment to what i think their role should be (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: What do you think? Uh, What do you think is happening to our copyright laws? Do you think we're going to stay with what we have, or do we think we're trending to
2: a different regime? I think we're trending to a different regime. But again, don't go to the betting markets. But I think the most interesting factoid about these bots is, and I teach this to my students when I'm teaching them how to use the bots, about how they generate different content every time you prompt them. And there's an argument to be made. We we we'd need a a 400 minute long uh, podcast to cover this, uh, Olga, and our audience wouldn't stay with us, but um, there's an argument to be made that, given that the bot can produce say three different outcomes and you may be picking, it, choosing between them, that there isn't enough um, human activity or human intervention uh, in what a bot is uh, producing to to really say that um, it's fair use and a new creation. So, we may need to work some of that out politically.
1: It's funny how copyright is often a political issue from Mickey Mouse Act mm-hmm. to all kinds of stuff. Copyright, among all the intellectual property laws, is actually highly politicized because it has so much impact, not just on technology, but also industries that are publishing and all kinds of, so everyone cares deeply and widely, and it has massive implication. I, the one yes. thing I, I, as a practitioner who advise technology companies, some publishers, the one thing I do think that it's the most useful thing lawmakers can do independent of outcome is actually to have clarity. The one thing I don't like advising is fair use, because remember, fair use is, is a defense. <laughs> <So> <laughs> basically, that by definition means you already did something wrong. Now you're just saying I like, just had a good reason right. to do that. And that's like, yeah. a, aside from the fact that it has seven to nine factors depending on jurisdiction and judge basically does whatever she wants, aside from that, that it's hard to predict, it's also a defense. So it puts you in a weak position when you're negotiating. So the copyright, I do think it's trending to change. I'm not sure if it's going to get better or more political and worse and less certain. Um, and so I do worry about that. I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on where we're trending to
2: yeah, it's that adaptability to the new technology which makes judges' application of these standards, which, as you said, is already somewhat unpredictable, it's going to make that even less predictable. God bless judges. Thank God I'm not a lawyer, and so I don't have to argue in front of them. Um, but there are at least some on the federal uh, bench who probably still think the internet is a series of tubes, right? So try to get them to understand AI and what it's actually doing behind the scenes and how it's actually is or isn't transforming uh, copyrighted content, that's going to be a lot. Um, And I think we need new um, legal political uh, intervention, lawmaker intervention, so we can debate this with multiple sides, having input onto it, which is exactly how Congress works these days. It's an incredible rational debate representing many voices.
1: (laughs) I actually completely agree with you. I think you said it fliply that this technology may be hard to understand, but I remind people that not so long ago, Mr. Zuckerberg was testifying in Congress, trying to explain to the members of Congress how Facebook works.
2: We sell ads, Senator. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and that was an exercise in constipation. <laughs> That's all I will say on this issue. Let, let's take a simpler issue. Let's take a, a very simple issue of privacy. <laughs> The executive order promises new privacy protection, specifically from federal use of data, data yeah. of brokers. And what will this mean for the federal law enforcement? Can data from brokers be used in investigations without warrant? Let's kind of start with what it says and what we think the implications of this will be.
2: This is a big issue and concern uh, of mine is, uh, especially law enforcement, um, at every level a federal state and especially local, buying data from uh, data brokers and using the third party rule from whenever it was, 76, were using the third party rule to shield themselves. Already in 2019 in Carpenter versus United States, they, the Supreme Court started to chip away a little bit at that third party rule. But it's a huge concern uh, of mine. And this is a sneaky part of the executive order and a and part that made me smile, actually. There's this part that says that basically the federal government is not going to buy data from brokers anymore that uses personally identifiable data, which in, in, in this case is going to mean re-identifiable personal data. And again, maybe through procurement processes, they'll develop algorithmic checks to see what is in there in terms of personally identifiable uh, data. And if you want to sell that data uh, to the federal government, a lot of people do, a lot of the third-party data brokers do, they're actually just saying you're going to have to clean it up uh, in a lot of ways. And and NIST is going to develop standards and the other agencies are going to contribute to the development of those standards and you're going to have cleaner data. And that's going to affect what data brokers uh, do. I think huge downstream effects that may be good in terms of law enforcement, parentheses, misuse of purchase data.
1: This becomes a very big issue <laughs> very quickly. So can data from workers be used for investigations without a
2: warrant? <laughs> currently that's what's happening. Uh, right. And the Supreme court has yet to hear it would take a few years for a course to get through for a case to get through the courts. But, currently that's what's happening. It, of particular effect in with local texas law enforcement basically using data from data brokers to identify any patterns that look like say travel to an outside state for an abortion so there's a ton of issues and uh, they have a lot of things for courts to sort out in that law but the use of data is one of them
1: this is not the first time the the president the administration has spoken on ai well before the executive order the Biden Harris administration had already taken action on equity and fairness by publishing a blueprint for an AI, AI bill of rights and issuing executive order directing agencies to call- combat algorithmic discrimination. Help me oh. understand what is the relationship among those documents and how does this executive order build on this and previous actions? I
2: think that. For many people out there, the civil rights component of this executive order was another disappointment, but if there's any silver lining in that cloud, it's still wait and see. There's there's more to come. The executive order is not just the first 110 pages. Every agency is being being asked to do something, and the DOJ and the, the civil rights offices are being asked to develop best practices with respect to the use of... Uh, use of AI in sentencing, in parole recommendations, in pretrial release, in risk assessments and surveillance and so on and so forth. So it's only a statement right now about uh, the development of uh, best practices, but there's still time for, for any of you who care about this issue, if you're out there uh, listening, there's still time for you to affect this process. So f- for all the activists with whom I agree that things like facial recognition shouldn't be being used by law enforcement who who are really scared of algorithms to predict uh, things like pretrial detention effects and so on and so forth if you're scared of this if you want to work on this there wasn't much in the executive order but there'll be an opening for you to comment and uh, affect this process i think
1: as someone who now been in various disruptive technologies on my, my a few jobs ago i was full time in blockchain crypto and i saw, i see the impact of politicizing technology to this day and mm-hmm. what it means for innovation and and just changing our lives and the impact and all that. I On the one hand, I'm super excited about the executive order because this is a technology that could be misused very easily. On the other hand, our lawmakers are not of one mind, not even close. And what I mean by not of one mind, I'm not of one mind to do the right thing, having all kinds of like political agendas related to the world and internal politics. So I do worry about politicizing another important technology (laughs) and the impact of that. And so that's, I think, a discussion we've had on copyrights. Privacy is another one. Surveillance. It's not, I can go on for a long time. Mm -hmm. So we are on the topic of, say, new possible powers to DOJ, a very scary organization to deal with. (laughs) And as in-house lawyer, very actively thought about how to do the right thing, so I don't have to explain on the stand. So my executives don't have to explain this stuff on the stand. So what are the best practices for investigating and prosecuting civil rights violations related to AI? If you are in-house lawyer advising your disruptive technology builders, how do you make sure that you don't find yourself testifying to DOJ or your executives testifying to DOJ? How do you yeah. do not only the right thing, but defendable things so go home and can kiss your kids goodnight and have a good life?
2: Wow, that is a really big question. And definitely, I got to pull a Star Trek here and say, I'm a professor, not an engineer, Captain Kirk, I'm a professor, not a lawyer. So it's a really big question. But one example that I, I'll give you, one of the things specifically mentioned in the executive order is... Uh, fair housing uh, law and um, guidance to landlords on precisely what they can do. There are a bunch of products out there um, right now that use AI algorithms to do, to provide something that they advertise as better than a credit check in terms of predicting whether or not your future tenant is really going to uh, pay. But they're scraping a ton of data into these algorithms. And one of the things that everyone needs to know when they're using AI is that it, even if you're watching closely, most big data machine learning, but also our current versions of AI, they can actually see patterns that you can't even see in the data. So they can find race. It's There's no way to say it other than they can just find race in your data. They'll just find it. They'll find a proxy for it. And it might be in social uh, media usage. It might be in the type of language used underneath a social media post. Uh, it yeah, might no, be I mean, a... you
1: can find race either intentional or in, or impact, right? We do not actually have tools to completely eliminate bias. That's, that's, it's a technology problem before it becomes a policy problem. So, yes, you can squeeze all kinds of stuff out of data, whether it's on intention or impact, for sure.
2: <laughs> for sure. And I think, so in terms of my impression of things uh, that I'd want to tell uh, the companies, would be about that. You need to know exactly how much of a black box these things are uh, and the way that what's going on underneath the hood is very difficult to predict. And you could find yourself in a disparate impact uh, case without much way of uh, avoiding it. Um, Because you can't even really say that we had the right intentions or took the right acts, or nobody particularly aimed at discrimination here because the process is total black box.
1: Yeah, the, the conversation in discrimination is hard because there is also impact. So the, 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 okay. at some point your attention is is, is good start, uh, but it is definitely a start. But the executive order does direct uh, the federal agencies uh, to provide clear guidelines for various okay. you know landlords, federal benefits programs and contractors uh, to keep algorithms essentially away from discrimination. We see similar mm-hmm. things happening in employment law as well. New York now requires audits, which I frankly, actually, I would be curious to think about audits. I tend to think that we're going to see a lot more of them and we're mm-hmm. going to s- develop a lot of deep and wide guidelines of how much resources to expand uh, and what it means to do yeah. the right thing. But anyway, <laughs> what do you anticipate the guidelines for the federal agencies when it comes to landlords? federal contractors will say with respect to discrimination. And that related question, do you see that audits will be something we'll see more of?
2: Yes, uh, I think so. And there are a number of organizations out there working on audit standards. And I I won't mention any in uh, particular because I'm, I'm not looking to make an endorsement. But one of the problems that they're running into is that they need a government agency to actually Back up that uh, standard, right there needs to be some accepted thing like gap financial accounting uh, standards for financial auditing to work, so similarly, there's got to be some sort of uh, core agreement about what an audit is supposed to be checking for with respect to say guidance to landlords, yeah, one of the things that I already mentioned there was that There may be guidance coming out of the government about how fair housing law applies to these black boxes. And it may not, it may have a chilling effect on some of the development of some technologies. And that may be a really good thing, right? But it's gonna have a chilling effect, but that's another sneaky area of influence that this executive order is gonna place over any regulated, currently regulated business. Yeah. Finance, uh, fair housing medical information, et cetera, et cetera. It's a shadow looming over them, which may be good.
1: (laughs) We are coming to the end, time flew by. I do want to talk about the small issue of competition, the issue of technology increasingly having antitrust issues has been predating AI. We, for the last few years, have been taking a stab at big tech. And some folks have made it a political campaign. I'm not taking position on this issue, at least not today, but it is a big issue. And there's valid arguments on both sides. What is the impact of this executive order on the competition? And then I guess I will ask you, this is where it's going. Something near and dear to my heart is the open source movement and the problems.
2: Another really? podcast entirely, Olga. The funny thing is I actually got into this technology stuff about 11 years ago. This is going to sound like a strange pathway, but about 11 years ago, I was teaching students about a little essay by John Locke, which was about pricing in fair markets. Oh, uh, or, yeah. And I started looking at Amazon, these accusations about it. Amazon bots, uh, Amazon pricing basically colluding with other pricing bots and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden I was off on uh, digital markets, right? So competition is one of the first places where I actually got into this, into thinking about tech. My perspective is regulation doesn't always harm competition. It can just set for fair competition. And really, in many ways, often it does. The uh, big AI companies, especially OpenAI, and I think I could say also Anthropic, but especially OpenAI are on the hill asking to be regulated but they're asking to be regulated in a way that is anti-competitive. And you probably all have heard this argument before, I don't need to rehearse it, but licensing would be very bad for competition and be very bad for the open source movement. And so I'll just super quick say, I am for as much open sourcing uh, of this stuff as we can for access to university researchers, but also for for creativity of companies and production. I think licensing would uh, chill open source development of this stuff. I think there are things in the, uh, AI, in the AI executive order that also chill open source access to these models, right? So there are some things that are bad about it, but at least the national AI research resource is a good thing in the executive uh, order, uh, allowing more people access to what's going on under the hood of these uh, models, pushing in the direction of more, I, I hope, eventually open source development, at least right now, open research.
1: Yeah. it's. It- I'll actually what I will ask you is to actually talk a little bit more about that licensing because this is a very broad term, and that while we all may understand what licensing means, in this context, it means something really specific. So I'll put you on the spot and ask you to define what sort of what's discussed so people understand. And then I'll make a second observation around open source cap- is also a very wide term and captures a lot of stuff that really, sometimes actually even not as open as you might think. Mm. And it's when, and so when I see folks throw those terms around as someone who is a practitioner in the art, like it's, it's a completely different game depending on which license you pick. It will have massive implications for your code, your exit, your employees, your, how you can make money. I get really worried when that term is is thrown around loosely and not specifically referring to the license. I'm much more comfortable with the term that you, I think, used for academic research, for example. That's a very Mm -hmm. different term. I'm much more comfortable Mm -hmm. with it. But open source doesn't always always mean free. And it actually could, in fact, create monopoly rights and extraction rights and perverse incentives to do wrong things. But that aside, in this context, what does licensing mean? And what is, what is the impact on competition yeah. that you think that could be negative?
2: Yeah, on the open source thing, it's so important. I hope that if, if we've got people sticking with us at this point in the hour, and you're interested in this issue, and you haven't thought about AI before, it's really complicated to think about what open source means with respect to AI, when that big company that used to be called Facebook put out Llama 2 open, I'll just use only that word. You had access to the weights, right? But that didn't mean you could actually adjust this model in any way and for any purpose or to suit it for your purposes. Right? So it wasn't even at that point, even moving in the direction of open source, but then to my surprise and and pleasure, over the course of the summer, they moved towards providing more uh, potential tools where developers could actually control Llama 2 and running it on their own corner of the cloud. So they moved more in the direction of open source. And and I think that's good. But as you said, contested definitions of what open source really means. The licensing aspect of it would be licensing the actual developers themselves so that they demonstrate skills in the development. It might be audits, bias, cross checks; Those might be part of the skills that they're required to have, but so that they demonstrate skills in the development of ML so that they're not developing dangerous models. But if you do that, then you're limiting competition. You're limiting people from entering into the marketplace, potential tinkerers who could take Llama 2 and actually retrain it, all right? not just adjust its performance in small ways, but actually retrain it. And they, they could tinker with it and actually create something that's better, more beneficial for humanity, safer, less subject to cyber hacking type risks and, and so on and so forth. But that person can't be working on it in their spare time or in their basement or in their college dorm room. Uh, because you'd have to have a license to be operating it. So that's the way in which it's anti-competitive. Is that, is that helpful?
1: Yeah, no, it is. I, I, we definitely not going to get to the truth today. It's going to take a little bit of time for lawmakers and us to wrap our minds. It's a really all, I, I, all I'm getting at is that open source is a, is a really pregnant tool. There is so much in it. As somebody who had to deal with it for the last two decades, wizard with without AI, mostly without AI, I can tell you it's really complicated. AI does not yeah. make it simple. I can tell you that there's yes. a related yes. issue of personal liability to developers that is lurking right underneath because you can use this tool for good and bad. And I've seen this issue in crypto quite a lot because if you have access to whatever open source and you can do good with it or you can equally likely do bad with it how much of of your personal well-being you're putting on the line and should the company for which you work have experience impact on that all of those are open issues and we're not going to decide them today but steven i I feel
2: like i want to download your your expertise directly into my brain let's do another (laughs) podcast this one's going to be called notes to olga's legal self (laughs) but it's going to be me interviewing you to hear about that. Oh, I don't know.
1: I am much more comfortable being the one who interviews, but I have really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We covered a ton of ground from copyrights to employment, to Fair Housing Act, to surveillance, to open source, to personal liability, to all kinds of stuff. So if you took notes and it looks like a mumba jumba, I think we have accomplished our purpose. Steven. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. What is one thing you want folks, people, folks to take away from this conversation?
2: Yeah, and you remember the graduate, and the, the, the word was plastics. So I'm just going <laughs> to use three words, risk management frameworks. If you do, if you are affected by this executive order and you do only what seems on the surface of it uh, to be required right now by the executive order, you may not have in place uh, processes, risk management frameworks that that will protect you uh down the line where, where you could say hey we follow best practices at the time risk management frameworks uh, have to have quite a bit to do with uh, the processes that teams follow as well as the algorithmic training they do and et cetera et cetera and anybody who wants to talk more about risk management frameworks i just love the nist risk management framework and uh happy to talk with you about it you can find me at this mm-hmm. university right here kelta
1: It's a great university and NIST is very much emerging as a framework that folks are following. Mm -hmm. The good news, we've been able to perfect it for security and privacy in the last few decades. So the best news for AI is that we are not starting from scratch. Thank you everyone for joining. I hope you enjoyed this geeky conversation and I'll see you next time.
0: (music) And that brings us to the end of another thrilling episode on the Notes to My Legal Self AI Insights. We had a fantastic time exploring the fascinating intersection of law and AI with you. But hold on tight, because the adventure doesn't stop here. Stay connected with us on social media to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, and be part of our incredible community of legal enthusiasts. Together, we can inspire, learn, and make a real impact on the world of law and AI. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to share it with your friends, colleagues, and anyone else who could benefit from the exciting insights we discussed. Let's spread the knowledge and enthusiasm far and wide.